The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. It's good to have you here this morning. Thanks for watching us, those of you who joined us live. Um, In our last two studies, we've been looking at the subject of Israel. Now, this is an extremely important subject, Israel. I think it's one of the most, one of the things that the church today seems to be most confused on. Because most of the church today holds to a dispensational theology. They have a very strange view of Israel. And this theology of dispensational Zionism causes believers great distress when things like the sudden outbreak of war between Israel and Hamas takes place. And believers seem to think that, or Zionistic believers seem to think that whatever happens in modern day Israel is part of biblical prophecy. Everything that happens there is part of prophecy. So no matter what happens, and no matter who starts the conflict, they line up behind Israel. They feel it's their sacred duty, and they'll quote scriptures such as Zechariah 2.3, For thus says Yahweh of hosts, After His glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For He who touches you touches the apple of His eye. And they take this referring to physical Israel. And anybody that goes against physical Israel, you're, uh, you're actually sticking your finger in God's eye, and that's not a very good thing to do. So, 27 days before the first rocket was fired from Gaza, a squad of Israeli police officers entered the Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. They pushed past the Palestinian attendants, and they cut the cables to the loudspeakers that were broadcasting their prayers. Now, why'd they do this? Well, it was the night of April 13th, which is the first day of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. It was also Memorial Day in Israel, which honors those who died fighting for the country. And the Israeli president was delivering a speech at the Western Wall, which is a sacred Jewish site that lies below the mosque, And the Israeli officials were concerned that the prayers would drown out his speech. So they sent some cops over there, they went in, and they cut the cables for their prayers. Now, the Israeli police raid on the mosque was one of several actions, I think, that led to a month later to the sudden resumption of war between Israel and Hamas. But the bottom line is, no matter who started this war, it has nothing to do with biblical prophecy. Nothing at all. God is through with the nation Israel. That's something very important for us to understand. Now, and we've been looking at this for several weeks. In our first study, we looked at who is Israel. And we looked at Romans 9, 6. And we saw that there are, in fact, two Israels, biblically. You had the physical nation of Israel, and then you had true or spiritual Israel. And we saw that one could be a physical Israelite, part of that nation, without being a true Israelite. The promises were to the true Israel and not to national Israel. True Israel consists of Yeshua and all who are joined to Him by faith, whether Jew 
or Gentile. So anybody who does not believe in Yeshua, I don't care what their birth is, how Jewish they think they are, they are not part of the Israel of God. Now, this week I was reading John 8, and it really struck me for the first time, I think because we had just gone over this, that these, the words of Yeshua reminded me of what Paul said in Romans 9, 6. Look what Yeshua says. He says, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Now, Yeshua is speaking to the Jews here, and the word offspring is the word sperma, which means seed or descendant. So Yeshua is telling him, I know you're Abraham's descendants. Now watch what he says in verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Yeshua said to them, If you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. Now, if here is what's called a second class conditional sentence. He is saying, If you were Abraham's children, which you are not, then you would be doing what Abraham did, but you are not. So Yeshua says, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham. And he's saying, you're, you're physical descendants of Abraham. Then he says to those same people, if you were Abraham's children, which you are not, and he's here referring to spiritually. So physically they're descendants, but he's saying spiritually you're not. This is the same thing Paul says in Romans 9.6. Two Israels. we got a major hum up here. Do we mute those? Thank you. So we looked at who is Israel. And then we looked at the olive tree and two Israel from Romans eleven sixteen through 18. And in this study, we saw that the olive tree represents the spiritual people of Yahweh made up of both Jews and Gentiles. The root of the tree is the covenant promises that God made to Abram. And the tree is the true believers in every age who embrace those covenant promises. Now, Gentile believers became partakers with the remnant of Israel, the believers in Israel, in the Abrahamic covenant. God didn't replace the Hebrew tree with a Gentile tree. He grafted us into the Hebrew tree. This is fulfillment theology because the church is the fulfillment of all the promises that Yahweh made to Israel. So the root now supports two types of branches, cultivated and wild, and together they are one tree. Believers, you and I, Gentile believers, have been grafted into God's olive tree. God didn't get upset with Israel and go out and plant a new tree as dispensationalism teaches. They're two separate entities they teach. He grafted us into Israel through Yeshua, who is the true Israel. Now, this morning we want to continue to look at this idea of Israel, but I want to look at what I see this morning as, as one of the most fascinating areas of biblical study, which is the typology of Israel. Now, typology is the study of types. What exactly do we mean by types? Well, Bullinger writes this. He says, a type is a figure or ensample of something future and more or less prophetic called the antitype. So you have the type, which is the figure and example, and then you have the anti-type. Brumall gives this statement. He says, a type is a shadow cast on the pages of Old Testament history by a truth 
whose full embodiment or antitype is found in the New Testament revelation. Now, so you have a type, and the fulfillment of that type, the type is a form of prophecy. And the fulfillment of that is called the antitype. Now, keep that in mind. Now, there are several words used in the Greek New Testament to denote what we have just defined as a type. First, there's the term tupos, which is our basic English word for type. Paul uses this in Romans 5, where he said, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who's to come. So here, Paul tells us that Adam is a type. He's a tupos of one who was to come referring to Christ. So you have type, anti-type. Second, there's the word skia, rendered shadow, in Colossians 2.16. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. Now, what's Paul referring to here? Well, the words that Paul used rendered here, festival, new moon, or Sabbath, represent the annual, monthly, and weekly celebrations that were tied with the Mosaic Law. This phrase is indicative of all the appointed festivals of Israel. We've looked at these many times, and it's used as such in at least three different places in the Tanakh. So he's talking about the Mosaic Covenant. Now watch the next verse. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, to come here is from the Greek word mellow. It means about to. So Paul's saying these things are about to happen at the time of his writing of Colossians. He's saying the Mosaic system is about to become a shadow. The realities were about to come. The word shadow here is skia. So we have tupas and we have skia. Third, there's this term hupadigma, translated copy and is used in conjunction with shadow in Hebrews 8, they serve a copy, he says, and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, here copy is from the Greek word hupadigma, and shadow is skia. It is used here referring to the temple. So he's saying the temple is a type. So we have tupas, skia, hupadigma. There's going to be a test at the end, so get these words down, all right? Fourth, there's the Greek word parabole. What's our word for that? Parable. That's found in Hebrews 9, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Symbolic here is the Greek word parabole. So here the tabernacle is symbolic for the present age. That's the age, the old covenant age, the age Paul lived in. So we have tupas, we have skia, hupadigma, parabole, and finally there's anti-tupon, rendered copies in 1 Peter 3.21 and Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Here copies is anti-tupon, this word, as used in the New Testament, denotes that which corresponds to the type. It is the reality which fulfills the prophetic picture. All right, so we have type, we have anti-type. The type is the picture. It's the shadow. 
The anti-type is the fulfillment, it's the reality. A type is a real, exalted happening in history, which was divinely ordained by Yahweh to be a prophetic picture of good things which He proposed to bring to fruition in Christ. Let me give you a few examples of this that I think you're probably familiar with. Numbers 21.5 says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. This, this is mind-blowing to me. Just think of what they just saw. They just went through the plagues in Egypt. They saw the hand of God in a miraculous way. They, they came through the Red Sea on dry land. They saw all this thing, and they say to Moses, why have you brought us out of Egypt? So they're, it's just, what happens next? Anybody know the story? Come on. What happens next? Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, you think? For we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Now look, pray to Yahweh that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Why was God killing the Israelites? Complaining. See, we truly are Israel, aren't we? (laughs) We fall right into that same pattern. And Yahweh said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. All right, so the bronze serpent is a means of salvation for the Israelites, and this is a type of Christ who is our salvation that comes through Him. Look at what uh, John says, John 3, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, Yeshua did not here merely find an apt illustration of His means of saving men by dying on the cross. It was a remarkably divine ordained type of salvation from death and the punishment for sin by a God-appointed means. What did the Israelites have to do to be saved from the poisonous snake bite? Join the church? Oh, no, they didn't join the church. Pray a prayer? Did they have an altar call? Did they need to get baptized? Did they repent of all wrongdoing and promise to live a holy life? No, none of that stuff. What did they have to do? Look, look at the bronze serpent and live. The word look here is the Hebrew navot, and it means look. How's that? Look, look, gaze upon. That's all they had to do. If they were bitten, they had to look to the bronze serpent and they'd be healed. It was deliverance for them, physical deliverance for those who believe. And by comparing himself to that serpent, Yeshua was teaching that whoever trusted him and his death would receive eternal life. This type was very beautiful, set forth, it set forth salvation through Christ by faith alone. The only thing they had to do was just look 
I mean, how hard is that? You're bit, you know you're bit, okay? If you didn't get bit, you didn't look. But you got bit, oh, I got bit by poison. You look at that thing and all of a sudden, you're physically healed. Type, anti-type. The serpent is the type, Christ is the anti-type. Now let me ask you this. Is the church saved by Christ? Yes, of course. But the type was given to Israel. Yet we see its fulfillment in the church. So in topology, we see the unity of the scriptures. Now, William G. Moorhead writes this concerning types. A type is a draft or sketch of some well-defined feature of redemption. And therefore, it must in some distinct way resemble its antitype, i.e. Aaron, as high priest, is a rough figure of Christ, the great high priest. And the Day of Atonement in Israel, Leviticus 16, must be a true picture of the atoning work of Christ. A type always prefigures something future. A scriptural type and predictive prophecy are in substance the same, differing only in form. A type always looks to the future. An element of prediction must necessarily be in it. So a scriptural type and predictive prophecy are in substance the same. So a type is an acted out prophecy, but it's as truly prophetic as a spoken prophecy and at equal value with spoken prophecy in directing the faith of the Israelites to the coming salvation. For example, in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, is given a spoken prophecy, vividly portraying the vicarious sufferings of Christ. But at the altar in the tabernacle, the same great truths were daily predicted, both morning and evening, in the harmless, innocent lamb and its substitutionary death for others, and the sprinkling of its blood before God. Look at Numbers 28.3. And you shall say to them, This is the food offering that you shall offer to Yahweh, two male lambs a year old without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. This happened every day in Israel. Morning and evening, these lambs were sacrificed. Now, the sacrificial system was considered by New Testament writers to be typical of the perfect and the final sacrifice of Christ. Every lamb was pointing to Christ. And when John the Baptist saw Yeshua coming, he said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And those people, when they heard that, here's the Lamb of God, this is a sacrificial offering. This is the one. The blood of every innocent victim and the faith of every old covenant offerer was now made efficacious through the offering of the perfect Lamb of God for the sin of the world. And without His coming, the Old Covenant sacrifices would have been meaningless and worthless. Let me give you a couple interpretive principles that we need to keep in mind when we study types. You, you can't make everything up to be a type and you know, make up the anti-type. Number one, it must be recognized that types are grounded in real history. The people, places, events, etc. were deliberately chosen by God to prepare for the coming of of the Christian system. Secondly, there's a graduation from type to anti-type or from lesser to greater, from material to spiritual, from earthly to heavenly. 
Now, please grasp that second point there. You have the type that is material. You have the anti-type is the spiritual fulfillment of the material type. Hang on to that. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Oh, here you have the first Adam, and you have the last Adam. And Paul is talking about Adam, who he says is a type. We saw that. Adam, who is a type of Christ. Romans 5.14. Now, type here is from Tupas. Then speaking of Adam and Christ, Paul says this. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. So you got this graduation. you got natural, the type. The spiritual, the anti-type. The anti-type is spiritual. It's the heavenly. It's the fulfillment. It's the reality of what the type pictured. Now, with that being said, I want you to understand, and this is critical that we understand this, national, ethnic Israel was a type. If we grasp that and we say, okay, I understand Israel was a type, what does that tell us about Israel? What happens when the anti-type comes? The type is gone. It's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. It's done. So, so it is temporary. It is natural and waiting for the spiritual. So just if you can grasp the fact that national, ethnic Israel was a type, you understand it's passing off the scene when the anti-type comes. And this is what people miss. That's why you've got to understand Israel being a type. Understanding this is crucial to understanding Scripture. Now, dispensationalism, especially Zionism, misses this very important point and thus tries to keep separate the type and the anti-type. The people of Israel themselves were a type. The nation itself, as God's special people, was typical of the true people of God. It was physical Israel. But Paul describes Christian believers as spiritual Israel. See, national Israel was divinely ordained to resemble spiritual Israel. The physical seed of Abraham typified the spiritual seed of Abraham. And some of the promises made to his seed were not fulfilled at all to the physical seed. But as Paul teaches in Romans 4, only to the spiritual children. Physical Israel as a type of spiritual Israel is constantly set forth by Paul in Romans and Galatians. And understanding that the nation of Israel was a type, we shouldn't be surprised to understand that Israel's sacrifices, Israel's priesthood, Israel's temple, Israel's land also had typical significance. Now, dispensationalism puts great emphasis on a rebuilt temple and a priesthood, because they failed to see these as types. They were types. They'd been fulfilled. Physical Israel is a type, and so was the tabernacle. Look at Hebrews 8.5. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things, spiritual things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, now that tent he's talking about is the tabernacle, 
He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now here copy is hupadigma, shadow here is skia. The tabernacle, he's saying, was a type. What is the anti-type of the tabernacle? It's Yeshua. John 2.19, Yeshua answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. See, people, we have to see this. Yeshua replaces the temple, the tabernacle. He is the anti-type of that tabernacle and temple. What did the tabernacle represent? That was the presence of God among the children of Israel. What is Christ? He is the presence of God now. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeshua replaces the temple itself. He's the anti-type of the temple. The temple, I said, represented the children of God. And now here's Christ representing the temple. He dwelt among them. The word dwelt here is skenao, and it means a tent. He tabernacled among us. Now, God is not there in the tabernacle. He is in person. He came, Yeshua came, and He pitched His tent, or He tabernacled among us. Now, notice what Peter says to the Jewish leaders in Acts 4.10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Yeshua the Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. Now, notice what he's talking about Christ here, and notice what Peter says about Christ in the next verse. He says, This Yeshua is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So he's saying Yeshua is the cornerstone upon which the spiritual house of God is being built He says, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you don't build on this cornerstone, Yeshua, you don't have salvation. He is the spiritual house of God. The tabernacle, the temple has been replaced. So let me ask you this. Whose Savior is Yeshua? Acts 13, 23 Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Yeshua, as promised. Well, Yeshua is Israel's Savior, so if the church and Israel are different, who's the church's Savior? Israel's Savior is our Savior because we are spiritual Israel. It's so important we understand this. Let me ask you, how did Israel move from type to anti-type? When did this take place? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked, okay? Israel went from type to anti-type by means of a second exodus. At the transfiguration, Luke wrote this, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, the word for departure here is the Greek word exodos, And it's only used three times in the New Testament. Hebrews uses it in 1122 of the Exodus. 
So it's kind of interesting, all right? He's talking about there's going to be another exodus, all right? Yeshua is saying there's going to be another exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is another 40-year journey, but not a physical one because this is the antitype. This is a spiritual journey. When did this second exodus begin? Well, to answer that question, we need to know when the first exodus began, right? When did the first exodus begin? Passover, right? You remember that the first Passover was observed when Israel was about to be delivered from slavery in Egypt. Exodus 12.3 says, To all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Who's the antitype of the lamb? It's the Lord, right? The Lord Yeshua. So Passover was a type or a picture of something much greater. It pictured the redemption of God's elect through the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God, the Lord Yeshua. You know, the typical significance of Passover is so clear in the New Testament. There's probably no Mosaic institution that's a more perfect type than this. He says in verse 6 of chapter 12, And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. The first Passover is celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, beginning Israel's exodus out of Egypt. Then almost 2,000 years later, Yeshua is crucified. Yeshua, the Lamb of God, is crucified on the 14th of Nisan, beginning a second exodus. This is the antitype. So the first and second exodus, the type and the antitype, both began on the very same calendar day, Passover, the 14th of Nisan. Israel's journey from Egypt to Canaan, the exodus, was a type. Who led the exodus of Israel out of Egypt? Well, that was Moses, right? And Moses is a type. Yeshua is the antitype. Moses was the first savior of Israel who God empowered to redeem Israel. This was prefiguring the true redeemer who by his perfect sacrifice redeemed Israel from sin death. In 2 Corinthians 3, Moses stands in relation to old covenant as Christ does to the new covenant. One is inferior, preparatory, the other is spiritual and final. In these ways then, the life of Moses points toward itself to the life and work of Christ. So Moses, he's the type pointing to Christ. Christ is the anti-type. And there's so many connections here. Like Moses, Yeshua grew up in Egypt, right? Look at Matthew 2.14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed Egypt. Like the story of Moses... Herod slaughters the male children, which Pharaoh did in Moses' time. Like Moses exiled to Midian, Yeshua's exile to Egypt will end with the death of Herod Pharaoh. And then we have a new exodus foretold, Matthew 2.15. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Now, This is a fascinating scripture here because Matthew is quoting here from Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And when you look at 
Hosea, in the context of the entire book, we find out that Hosea is talking here about the Exodus. The Exodus out of Egypt. That's what he's talking about. But as we've just seen, Matthew applies Hosea 11.1 to Yeshua as a youth returning to Judea from Egypt. And that doesn't seem to make sense to people. They're like, well, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. But you've got to remember that the meaning of a text ultimately resides in the intention of the author, who is God himself. And as we read Scripture in the context of the entire Bible as a whole, we see that he has made an analogy between Israel, God's son, being freed from Egypt, and Yeshua, God's son, coming up out of Egypt. This is a pattern that runs throughout Matthew's whole gospel. Matthew's making this connection. Yeshua is the Son of God. Out of Egypt I've called my Son. That's Exodus typology where Yeshua is the new true Israel. Well, what happens after He calls Yeshua? He's baptized in Matthew 3, 12 through 17. As Yeshua emerges from the water, we hear this. This is my beloved Son which invokes a related image. Israel was adopted and became God's son at the exodus from Egypt, at the crossing of the Red Sea. And so this new exodus typology. And here the new Israel is born. And when we come to Matthew chapter 4, which describes Yeshua's temptation in the wilderness, if we're familiar with the Tanakh, we see this pattern again. And when we read that Yeshua, the Son of God, spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, this reference reminds us of the Israelites' 40-year track in the wilderness. But that's not the end of the comparison with the number 40. The Israelites were tempted in the wilderness in the same three areas in which Yeshua was tempted in the wilderness. Number one, hunger and thirst. They didn't do too well. Testing God, they didn't do too well there. Worship of false gods. Yeshua, however, shows himself to be the obedient son of God where the Israelites were disobedient. Indeed, Yeshua responded to the temptations by quoting Deuteronomy, the very sermon that Moses gave the Israelites at the end of the 40-year sojourn. What does Yeshua do next in Matthew? Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. So Yeshua goes up on a mountain like Moses goes and gives the Torah, all right? Well, he gives the new Torah, the Sermon on the Mount. Yeshua is the new Israel. And this typology can be seen all through the New Testament if we're familiar with the Tanakh. The transfiguration experience is pregnant with Exodus symbolism. Just as Moses went up into the mountain and three com- with three companions, so does Yeshua. Moses' face shone with the glory of God. The face of Yeshua shone like the sun. Matthew tells us Moses and Elijah appear, and the voice from the cloud says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. This is my beloved Son. This is most likely echoing the words of Deuteronomy 18.15. Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses is talking. There's going to be a prophet like me from among you, from your brethren. It is to him you shall listen. He's talking about Yeshua. And here Yeshua is on the mountain. His face is shining like Moses. And from the mount, 
the Lord descends, as did Moses, to find confusion on the plain. And in Mark 9.19 says, He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring them to me. And Matthew and Luke add the words perverse, which shows that they saw a parallel between the generation of our Lord's day and the generation of the first exodus. Now in the book of Acts, Stephen begins his sermon with the review of Israel's history. And in this, the exodus receives the, the major part of his attention. There's a clear parallel between Moses the Redeemer, rejected by the people who worship idols, and Yeshua the Redeemer, rejected by His people who use the Jewish cultists in an adulterous way. So the nation Israel is a type, and their leader Moses was a type. What is the first Mosaic institution given? It was the Sabbath. Now, Listen carefully here for a minute. There's not one text in all the Bible that enjoins observance of the Sabbath upon any man before the Exodus or since Pentecost. Its first recorded observance was at the time of the giving of the manna, Exodus 16:23. Its purpose was for a memorial or a sign, Exodus 31:17, of their deliverance from Egypt and that they were the special people of God. It was observed in commemoration of the beginning of their nation as the Exodus, just the way Americans observed the 4th of July as a similar purpose. It was a weekly reminder of the peculiar relationship to God. And it was to be observed by a complete cessation from all work. The law was very strict in requirement of Sabbath observance. No fire was to be kindled, no cooking. Violation of the Sabbath, Sabbath was punishable by death. Now, very strict laws there, all right? This past week, I was talking to a believer, and they told me that they kept Sabbath. We were talking to him actually on Sunday, and they said, we kept Sabbath yesterday. And I wanted to, but I didn't ask where they sacrificed the lambs. Because... I mean, I had to bite my tongue, okay, because I wanted to get into this, but I didn't. But look at Numbers 28, 9, and 10. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs, a year old, without blemish, and two-tenths of an ephah of flour for a grain offering mixed with oil, it is a drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath, besides the regular burnt offering and the drink offering. So you can't keep Sabbath without offering sacrifices. What does this tell you about Sabbath observance? It has not been biblically observed since A.D. 70. When the temple was destroyed, the sacrifice ended. The majority of Israel's worship was sacrificial. That all stopped. Why? Because the anti-type showed up. And you don't have to do it anymore. They wouldn't have caught on. So God said, let me take care of this. Boom, we'll shut it down. You're never going to do that again. We're done with that. But Israel just revised everything, cut out all the sacrifices, said, let's keep going. Let's keep pretending we're worshiping God. Now, as we've already seen in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, the Sabbath was a type or a shadow of the body or a substance. So what is the anti-type of the Sabbath? 
Yeah, this is the right answer for every question of us, okay? Yeshua, all right? Yeshua is the anti-type. The Sabbath was a type, and the anti-type is Yeshua. The main idea of the Sabbath was physical rest. We went to the physical, to the spiritual, so the main, so the anti-type is spiritual rest. We rest in Christ. There was a physical rest. There had to be a typical higher rest to be found for the Christian. And the strict observance of the Sabbath, which God required of the Jews, like the requirements, uh, the strict observance of the divine pattern for the temple, was because it was to typify a perfect spirit rest of the Christian. Centuries before Moses, the patriarch Jacob predicted Christ's coming under the name Shiloh, rest giver in Genesis 49.10. Yeshua himself is the rest giver, and the rest he gives from the burden and the bondage of sin is the Christian Sabbath followed by that ancient Mosaic rest day. It's, that was a physical type. The anti-type has come. It was predicted that his rest shall be glorious. This is the most beautiful rest that you can have. That was a physical rest. We rest spiritually. We don't have to do any work spiritually. It's done. We're in Christ. We rest in Him. This is the true Sabbath keeping. And this is argued by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4. He says, He who ceases from his own works to obtain righteousness and trust in the mercy of God for pardon of sin has entered the Sabbath. The Sabbath, like any other ceremony requirement of the law of Moses, is abolished. But the blessed spirit rest it prefigured remains for the people of God. How much could be cleared up if we understand type and anti-type? It's fulfilled, people. Christ is our Sabbath rest. So when the Seventh-day Adventists come along or whoever else and try to tell you, well, you've got to worship on the Sabbath, I'm like, what are you sacrificing? Where are you sacrificing? Because if we're going to keep Sabbath observance, we're going to have to kill some animals here. Now, the writer of Hebrews says that Joshua, who led the Israelites into Canaan, failed to give them the promised rest, Hebrews 4.8. And he spiritualizes that promised rest and locates it not in a literal Canaan, but in Christ, of which Canaan was a type. Here is positive proof that God attached typical meaning to that journey. Of the Israelites. So, what event ended the first Exodus period? It was the destruction of Jericho, right? Jericho stood at the entrance of the promised land. It's a fortified city that represented a serious challenge to Israel's claim to the land. And its fall telegraphed a message to all the world that God was Lord of His people. By the time the children of Israel got to Jericho, they were afraid to death of them. We have heard about your God. And I mean, they're just scared to death already. And this, this word spread. So what event marked the end of the second exodus? I give you a hint, it was the destruction of a city. The destruction of Jerusalem. That's a coincidence. Both those 40-year things ended with destructions of cities. You know that Jesus is the Greek transliteration of Christ's Hebrew name, which is rendered in English as Joshua. 
Old Covenant Judaism was a major problem for those early believers. Nothing represented the old system better than the temple. Here was where the presence of God dwelt. His presence assured them that they were His people. But 40 years after the cross, in AD 70, believers fled the city of Jerusalem as the walls fell and the city was destroyed and burned. God said, I'm done with this. This exodus is over. We're entering the promised land. And similar to the collapse of the walls of Jericho, the fall of Jerusalem was symbolized, or the fall of Jerusalem symbolized the entrance of the redeemed remnant into Christ's everlasting kingdom. The believers were vindicated and revealed as the sons of God, while judgment fell on the Jewish system, which had rejected God as their king. And believers now reside in the new Jerusalem, which is the new covenant. In Galatians 4.24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So Paul's talking about two covenants, the old and the new. Verse 25, he says, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Not today, people, when Paul wrote this, present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So the present Jerusalem of Paul's day represented the old covenant. But Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. What exactly is Jerusalem above? Who's our mother? Well, you need to keep in mind the comparison here is between two covenants. Earthly Jerusalem represents old covenant. So the heavenly Jerusalem represents the new covenant. The events of Jericho offered a graphic image and actual prophecy of events at the close of the Jewish age. Forty years after Pentecost, when there were seven angels with seven trumpets of doom and judgment. Look at Revelation 8.2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. At that time, the great and powerful city of Babylon, which is Jerusalem, suddenly fell. Revelation 18.10. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, the great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. As in Joshua, the destruction of the city came at the sound of the trumpets. So at the end of the Jewish age, the destruction of Jerusalem came as Yeshua sounded the trumpets. This is Exodus typology, and it's seen throughout the New Testament. We see it very clearly in the book of Acts. Speaking of Moses, Stephen says this, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us. The word congregation here is the Greek word ekklesia. This word is taken over and it's used by the church. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the ecclesia of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This was the flock which Christ had purchased with his own blood. They were redeemed of the Lord and they were true Israel. In 1 Corinthians 10 and following, the experiences of Israel redeemed at the Red Sea, sustained but disobedient in the wilderness, are said to be types for us. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So Christ, figuratively speaking, came with them also out of Egypt and through the desert. He was the rock. 
We learn that in that text. Being a Jew, Paul must have felt that in this sense, he himself belonged to the Exodus generation. But as a Christian, he must have had this feeling way stronger. He knew that he belonged to the new eschatological Exodus under Yeshua, the Messiah. And in his opinion, this new Exodus of salvation was a complete typological counterpart of the ancient historical Exodus only on a larger scale, in a much more profound sense. The author of Hebrews sees the situation of his readers as being parallel to that of the people of the first exodus. They cross, the cross and the resurrection are the second exodus. The 40 years are the running out for them as A.D. 70 is approaches. And the people of Israel are to bring upon themselves the curses threatened in the book of Deuteronomy. And they're going to be dispossessed of their inheritance because of their sin. But the new people of God will then be led by the new Yahshua, the new Joshua, into the true spiritual inheritance. Now, if a material kingdom and a material temple had, in a sense, been the goal of the first exodus, these things must now be forsaken despite the obvious pull And God's people need to step out in faith, realizing, God, we're not looking for a physical rebuilt temple. We're not looking for land. We're not looking for any of this. They were all types, and they're fulfilled. We also see the Exodus typology in the titles of Christ. He is the I Am. He is the rock. He's the shepherd. He's the bridegroom, as was the God of the Exodus. He's the new Israel in a deeper sense than Israel was He's the Son of God. He is the vine taking Israel's place. He is the second Moses, the prophet, the servant. He's the second Yahshua, Yeshua the Savior and conqueror. These titles overlap each other as is the unique person He fulfills. All of this was spoken by Moses in the law and by the prophets. So dispensationalism is wrong. Zionism is heinous. It's very wrong. Israel and the church are not separate peoples. National, ethnic Israel was a type. If you just get that and understand the types end when the antitype shows up. It's all typical. All picturing. The Christian age. The church, the true Israel, is the antitype. All the promises that God made to His covenant people are fulfilled in the church, the true Israel. The true Israel is the Israel faith, not birth. Israel spiritual, no longer natural. And again, this is called, it's not replacement theology. We didn't replace Israel. We are fulfilling all the promises are fulfilled. It's fulfillment theology. The promises God made to Old Covenant Israel are fulfilled in the church, which is true Israel. And covenant, not race, has always been the defining mark of true Israel. Always. There's, God always had a remnant in the midst of Israel that were His true people. So people, whatever happens in the Middle East today with Israel has nothing to do with prophecy. It has nothing to do with us spiritually. I mean, I understand that Israel is an ally of ours, but, you know, my word, you, 
we've got to have some common sense here and say when they go in and they're slaughtering millions of people, you, hundreds and thousands of people, you can't just stop and say, well, they're Israel. They can do that whatever they want it, you know, and blame everything on the Palestinians. Here's the funny thing to me, not funny, sickening, I guess, thing to me. In Israel's quest to take over that land, they wiped out a lot of Palestinian Christians. But Christians today, they don't care about their Palestinian brothers who are actually children of the same father. They care about these Jewish people who are Christ-rejecting God-haters. But because they think we have to stand with Israel, they're standing behind. And, and I was talking to a Zionist, and I said Israel are Christ-rejecting God-haters. They did not like that. But I said, hey, here, let me just give you some quotes from First John here, okay? They didn't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Forget about what that Bible says. I know what I believe. Don't confuse me with the Bible. I mean, how ridiculous is that, people? God is finished with the type because the anti-type has arrived. Aren't you glad? Aren't you thankful? We're in the heavenly Jerusalem. We dwell with God and his family. Christ is our Sabbath rest. Christ has kept an kept every law ever given by God and we are in Christ so we have kept the law of God as has Christ and it is just a beautiful thing people when you understand typology let's pray father I thank you for your word lord it is glorious it is exciting father to to get in here and see some of the things that are laid out this this study of typology is such there's so much beauty here lord and when we understand it, it gives us clarity. Understanding that you're finished with the type when the anti-type comes. That the only purpose of the type was to point to the fulfillment. Thank you, Lord, for the marvelous things we learn from the Word of God. Amen.